0: American home is in dire straits. The home is in trouble. Marriages are failing all around us. When you look at the statistics, marriages within the church are failing at the same rate as those outside the church. Folks, that's a problem. So I want to talk to you uh, today and maybe tonight and next week, or maybe the next two Sunday mornings, again, about God's great masterpiece. And I want to specifically this morning talk to you about built to love. It says built to serve, but we're going to go with built to love because that's what I have in my notes here this morning. I want you to look at verse 4 of chapter 19. It says, And he answered and said unto them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female. And He said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Father, today I pray we would focus on Your Word, focus on hearing from You. We would not be distracted that we would stay right here, right in the moment, allowing You to speak to us, through your word. In Christ's name. Amen. I remember the story I heard some time ago. Some of y'all may have heard it too. It was a little girl who had learned the story about Snow White and the seven Dwarfs. When she came come home, she was excited. She'd come home to tell her mom about it. And she was telling mom about, you know, Snow White and how she fell into a deep sleep. And then when she got to the point where the prince come in and kissed Snow White and she woke up from her sleep, the little girl said, and then mom, do you know what happened next? of course, mom knew the story. She said, well, sure, huh? They lived happily ever after. The little girl said, no, they didn't. They got married. (laughs) Well, folks, it's sad, but many folks, many folks today feel that way about marriage. Now, I'm going to tell you something. What many don't realize or they fail to realize and understand is that after God created the heavens and the earth, the next masterpiece that God created was a marriage made in paradise. Understand, marriage is God's plan. Now, as you study Scripture, you're taught, and we find that Jesus fulfills many, many roles in our lives. He's our Savior, our Redeemer. He is our friend. He's our healer, our helper. He's our Master, our Lord, and our Sovereign. But there is one role that's often overlooked that Jesus fulfills, and that is the role of a builder. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Amen? But the Bible also tells us that Jesus is the one who builds upon that stone. Jesus told Peter in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, speaking of himself, the revelation that Peter gave that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, Jesus said, Peter, upon this rock, upon who I am, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And then right here in our passage, in verse 6, we also learn of something else. That Jesus has built. He says what God hath joined together. Let no man put asunder. Now I want you to notice that phrase there. Joined together. In the Greek language that is actually one word. And it's a word that describes the very act of building. Of putting something together. The idea that it's talking about is the connection that's made. When two pieces fit together and a masterpiece is created. Now I want to r- remind you of something if you don't remember this or maybe you never heard this. But thousands of years before God instituted the church, God instituted marriage. A covenant relationship between a husband and a wife. And it's this is how important this relationship is. It's so important that Jesus later on uses that very relationship to illustrate His relationship to His bride, the church. So, I believe, folks, it's safe to say that marriage is one of God's great masterpieces. Now, the first aspect of this great masterpiece is the fact that it's a sacred arrangement. The poet, some of y'all may know who I'm speaking of, William Cowper, he spoke volumes talking about marriage. He said, The only bliss of paradise, marriage is the only bliss of paradise that has survived the fall. Now, the sad truth is, far too many homes today, they don't seem to be any blissful paradise. It seems to be like a war front, like like a battle line in the house. Well, Jesus, in our text, in no uncertain terms, He describes the sacred arrangement of marriage. And for one thing, the first thing He does is give us the holy definition of marriage. Now, I realize one of the most heated debates in recent years in our country, and even in our state, is the definition of marriage. Now there are some who call a relationship between two partners of the same sex a marriage. But folks, the truth is that Jesus has already got a patent on that word marriage. And it's been defined once and for all by the God of the universe. Look at verse 4. He which made them at the beginning made them male and female. Now verse 5. For this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. So there you go, folks. To me, that's the end of the debate and the discussion. It's as clear as it can be. God's definition of marriage is between one man one woman for life. And let me just add this while I'm here. I don't care how many bills are passed, how many debates are waged, how many amendments can be made, all these man-made ideas and things have absolutely... No bearing on God's holy definition of the sanctity of marriage. What I mean by that is what God says does not change. Now, the reason for this holy definition is because it's a heavenly design. Marriage is not something, and I know that y'all have been married. I'm sure when the pastor counseled you or talked to you, he said it's not something to be entered into lightly. Well, he's quoting the Apostle Paul there. Marriage is not something you go into half-heartedly, but you do so reverently, discreetly, and with the fear of God. You say, why, preacher? Because when there is a wedding, there's more than just family and friends present. God is present. And what you need to understand is, marriage is the creation of God, and it's entered into under the watchful eye, the observation of God. Marriage is a serious business folks because it's spiritual but marriage must be approached diligently because it's appointed divinely so let me say one more time marriage was not crafted not framed not designed by man's ideas marriage was designed in the sovereign eternal mind and heart of almighty God go all the way back to the beginning all the way back to Genesis 2 God performs the first surgery in human history And he, from that surgery, creates the first woman, the first wife. And when Adam comes out of the recovery room and he sees Eve, what does he say? This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Understand, God's the one who put all this together. God's the one who formed it. And in our text, what Jesus does, he answers a tempting question of the Pharisees regarding marriage and divorce. And you study throughout the New Testament the Pharisees were constantly haranguing Jesus. They were constantly asking questions, trying to trip Jesus up, but they couldn't get it done. And so look what they asked Him in verse 3. They said, is it isn't lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause. Now, I want you to understand where this question is coming from. And let me read something. The great Greek scholar and great Baptist preacher A.T. Robertson, he commented, he said, The phrase, for every cause is an allusion to the dispute between two theological schools of the day. Back in this day and time, there were two Jewish rabbis, the first century, actually one a little before the other, uh, Shammai and Halel, or Ilel, however you want to pronounce it. Now, the school of Shammai took the strict and unpopular view of divorce for unchastity alone. Halel, on the other hand, they took the liberal and the popular view uh, of easy divorce for any passing whim. Now, this, stay with me on this. Back then, they believed that a a man could divorce his wife if he saw a prettier woman and decided he wanted her. Or if his wife burnt the biscuits for breakfast one morning. I mean, divorce was becoming a serious problem. Well, I want you to notice, Jesus answers the question. Verse 5 again. says, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and the twain, or the two, should be one flesh. Notice that phrase, for this cause. Now folks, that speaks of God's design regarding marriage. And and, and I love what Jesus does. Instead of referring to the opinions of either party that was being represented, Jesus calls their attention to the original design of marriage. Now, for this cause, I'm going to say something else about this. I believe that that reminds us that God at the beginning made but one man and one woman. You say, well, why is that important? God's original intention of marriage was that a man should have but one wife for life. You say, well, in the Old Testament, they had a lot of different wives. They were not following God's design and God's plan. I've often thought about Solomon and all those wives and and concubines and, and all that, and I'm like, I don't know if that guy was as wise as the Bible said he was. <clears throat> now as you know I've just told you divorce was rampant in Jesus' day but folks it's also rampant in our day to day now I'm going to confront something here and I want you to know something if you've been divorced I'm not trying to make you uneasy or uncomfortable or, 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 or anything I'm just I'm preaching God's word telling the truth and, and being realistic about it now I know there are people today who say well the divorce rate has dropped in America some of you have heard me say this They're absolutely right. But you know why the divorce rate has dropped in America over recent years? Because people are not getting married. They're just living together. They're just living together. But the fact remains that every 45 seconds to minute here in America, a family is destroyed because of divorce. The fact also remains that each year here in America, over 550,000 divorces take place. And the fact remains that each year in American churches, more than 240,000 divorces take place. Also, the fact remains that 70% of remarried couples will divorce in 10 years. George Barna, the research group, about three years ago, showed that nearly a quarter of married Christians divorce two or more times. Now, I know people say, well, there are biblical causes for divorce. I'm not going to argue that point. Yes. Right here in our, in our chapter that we're looking at today, here in chapter 19, verse 9, it says, saving for the cause of fornication. It speaks of sexual immorality. People say, well, then that means you can get a divorce. Let me explain something to you, all right? The culture of the time when this was written. This was speaking about when a man was engaged to a woman, And remember, the engagement lasted a year. And then they were married. If he found out from that year's time or even after they're married that she had been unfaithful, that she had been with another man, then he could divorce her privately and send her away. Do you remember when Joseph and and Mary, Mary was espoused to Joseph and she became pregnant by the Holy Spirit and Joseph thought to send her away privately or privately? That's what that verse is speaking of. It wasn't talking about people being married and somebody committing adultery. You know why? Because if you commit adultery, then you would not be divorced, you would be stoned to death. And then, folks, people say, well, you know, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 talks about an unbelieving spouse. Let me explain that to you. He absolutely does. He says, if the unbelieving spouse does not want to be in that marriage because of the believer, because of their belief in Jesus Christ, he says the believer is no longer bound under the law to that marriage. But let me say this. He's not saying if a Christian marries a non-Christian and then a few years down the road the non-Christian says, I don't want anything to do with you because you're a Christian. No, no. Because he makes it very clear that a Christian should not be unequally yoked with a non-believer. He's talking about two non-believers, one becomes a Christian, one does not. And the one that's not become a Christian says, I want nothing more to do with you, you become a a Jesus freak. Now, having said that, folks, I realize there are many in our churches who are divorced and been remarried. Again, I'm not trying to make anybody uncomfortable. I'm not trying to point anybody out. I'm just being honest with you. And let me say this to those that are here and you're not married. You need to approach the idea of marriage with the mindset that every date is a possible mate. Because you don't want to make the wrong choice. Matter of fact, you shouldn't even be trying to make the choice at all. You ought to allow God to make the choice for you. Now let me say this. Those of you who have suffered and experienced divorce... Listen to me. Hold your head up high. Do not allow the devil to defeat and discourage you because divorce is not the unpardonable sin. Now I realize a lot of people approach it that way. It is a sin that affects many people, but it's not the unpardonable sin. And at this point, I want to say this, and I want you to listen to me real close, real careful. God's will is for you to stay married to whoever you're married to right now. That's God's intention. You say, well, I I don't think God understands my situation. God understands your situation. You know, and I've had people say, preacher, you just expect too much. I don't expect any more than what God expects. And when people say, well, you don't counsel for divorce, I will never, ever counsel for somebody to get a divorce. I will not do that. They say, well, what about if there's abuse? I have told people you need to get out of that situation. And you do not go back until things change. But I have not counseled them to get a divorce. And I will not because I believe God's word says you should not get a divorce. Now that's my stance on it. Having said that, let's move on. We're talking about marriage. We're not talking about divorce. Now listen, although the Bible outlines causes for divorce that I've given you, divorce was never God's intention or design. God's design was for us to make the first one the right one so it'd be the last one. Now look at verse 8. Jesus says, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. In other words, God defines marriage. One man, one woman, for life. And God designed marriage to be a sacred arrangement. But also, marriage has a solemn assignment for us. You know, I'm reminded of a classified ad that I heard about. It said, For sale, wedding dress, worn only once. We'll trade for thirty-eight caliber pistol, no questions asked. (laughs) Now, folks, marriage is God's arrangement, but but let me tell you, it also involves an assignment. So we could put it this way. All right, we could say that the arrangement is God's part, the assignment is our part. And this is what I want you to get. Somebody said wisely, I don't remember who said this. Marriage is hard work, but very few work hard at it. Now, folks, listen. The the solemn assignment is uh, in our marriage. I want you to notice what we become. And what a beautiful picture is painted for us. And verse 4 talks about male and female. Verse 5, man and wife, but the perfect plan of God is in verse 5, the second part. It says, and they twain shall be one flesh. And then notice verse 6. Jesus signs it in the law because he repeats, he says, wherefore they are no more twain but one flesh. In his book, Romancing the Home, How to Make Your Marriage Sizzle, Dr. Ed Young comments, he says, Anyone who enters into marriage actually relinquishes the right to engage in any other adult relationship which might be equally deep or pervasive. One chooses one's mate as one chooses one's God, forsaking all others till death do us part. Now, what an amazing thought, folks. God brings together two people who are totally separate, who are totally different, And and I know there was an old book years ago, women are from Mars, men from Venus, or vice versa, or whatever. But let me say this, one might be from Mars and one might be from Venus, but God brings them together for the purpose of becoming one. Now, I always think of it like this, in terms of a triangle. At the bottom of the base of that triangle, at the farthest point, you have a husband and wife. At the top of that triangle is Jesus Christ. Now, let me make it real clear. When the husband and wife begin to grow closer to Jesus, what happens in their relationship? It grows closer together. So, folks, in order for that to happen, for us to become one in Christ, because that's the ultimate desired destination, in order for that to happen, Jesus Christ must be the center of the marriage relationship. And I'll just be real honest with you. If He is not the center, then nothing in your marriage can be centered. It's all going to be out of balance. But if He is the center, then as we begin to grow in Him, we grow with one another until the two become one flesh. Now, our assignment in the marriage relationship involves not only what we become, but how we behave. Now this right here, folks, is where many fail to cultivate their marriage. Jesus is saying that His design is for husband and wife to become one. But the fact is, many marriages consist of a husband and a wife who don't behave as one. I mean, the husband does his thing, the wife does her thing, and they go their separate ways. Now I'm going to be honest, it took me some time when I was young and newly married to figure this out. As marriage partners, Marcia and I were on the same team. We were working together, sharing, uh, striving together, sharing things together, striving for a goal. But it took a little while for me to figure that out. I remember the first time that we, we really had somewhat of a serious disagreement. Now, Marcia was even more timid then. Of course, she's not timid now. What am I saying? But uh, we had a serious, uh, kind of what we would, it, actually it wasn't serious you look back on thinking, how stupid is that. But you know what I mean when you're kids, it was a serious disagreement. Yeah. I don't know, maybe she didn't want to watch the ball game or something. I don't remember what it was, but we kind of had a tiff and and I'm telling you, that was the first time I realized, man, we're going to have to work at this. She's not mom. I can't get away with everything. I mean, it was almost like I heard the I heard the announcer say, "Let's get ready for the rumble." You know what I mean? Ding, ding, touch gloves, come out fighting. fight him. Well, folks, God dealt with me over the years, and he taught me it's not a competition with each other, but we're in cooperation with each other. Marriage is not a tug of war. No longer, when you're married, it's no longer mine and yours. It's ours, a common goal. Somebody said this, that on the sea of matrimony, the fellowship and the relationship doesn't have to be a godless battleship, but it can be a godly partnership whenever you allow Jesus Christ to become the captain of the ship. How we behave as one in Christ, how we behave, do you realize that he's rooted and grounded in love, unconditional, unselfish, undefiled, uncompromising love. Our marital behavior is to be governed by the love of Jesus Christ, the way Christ loves us. The Bible makes it clear as a husband, I'm to love my wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Wives, you're to love your husband as you love Jesus Christ, as unto the Lord. And let me explain something. This type of love is so, so much, much, much more than emotion. This type of love is an exercise of your volition. It is an exercise of your will. You choose to love your spouse as Christ loves you. It's so simple, but one of the greatest ways to show our love for our mate is to communicate it. Let me read you something. Nathaniel Brandon, a renowned psychologist and, and a marriage counselor, he has studied for years the habits of couples who have been happily married for 30, 40, and 50 years. And he highlights nine ways in which husbands and wives keep their love alive. Guess what's first on the list? And he writes, says this, In my own studies, as well as studies of other marriage counselors, we have shown that happy couples consistently say and mean, I love you. He said, happy couples express their loving words. They don't say, what do you mean, do I love you? I married you, didn't I? Instead, they say the words, I love you. And they realize it's a way of touching each other's soul. May I ask your husbands, how long has it been since you told your wife you love her? Wives, how long has it been since you told your husbands you love them? Say, it's been a long time. Well, that needs change. You need to say it, and you need to mean it. Well, what if I can't mean it? Friend, you need to fall in love deeper with Jesus Christ then, and you can mean it. I read a description recently of what love is and is not. Let me share it with you. Real love is patient. It says, I'll put up with the imperfections of my mate. Real love is kind. It says, I perform acts of kindness for the other person. Real love is joyful with the truth. It says my love grows out of a base of honesty and integrity. Real love is trusting. It says I believe in the best from my spouse. Real love is full of hope. It says I hope for the best from and for my mate. Real love is enduring. It says my love will last through the toughest of times. Real love is not jealous. Instead, it rests securely. Real love is not boastful. Instead, it refrains from building itself up. Real love is not arrogant. Instead, it humbles itself. Real love is not self-seeking. Instead, it puts a spouse's needs and desires first. Real love is not angry. Instead, it refrains from rash outbursts. Real love is not looking for paybacks. Instead, mature love forgives even when treated wrongly. Real love is most of all unfailing. Real love says to a spouse, I will always be there to offer my support because love never fails. Real love. Let me give you six biblical principles. Write these down real quick. You say it's almost noon. We got time. I don't have but a couple pages of notes left. I can get through it pretty quick. I talk fast. Write these down. Six biblical principles, folks, that I believe are found in every Christ-centered, Christ-honoring marriage. Number one, they all start with the letter A, easy to remember. Acceptance. Acceptance. Write down Romans 15, verse 7 on that. Paul says, Receive you one another as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Acceptance, number one. Number two, attention. 1 Peter 1.22 Attention, 1 Peter 1.22 Love one another with a pure heart, fervently, Peter says. Number three, adjustment. You can write down uh, Matthew 19, verse 6. There are no more twain, no more two, but one flesh. Number three, adjustment. Number four, forgiveness, but I'm going to use the word amnesty. Ephesians 4, 32, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Number five, appreciation. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 11. Appreciation, comfort yourselves together and edify one another. Lift up one another, encourage one another. And then number six, affection. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 3 says, Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence. That's talking about intimacy. And likewise also the wife unto the husband. All right, acceptance, attention, adjustment, amnesty, appreciation, affection. Make it, friend, you're married, listen to me. Make it the priority, the passion, and the pursuit of your marriage to become one in Christ and love your mate with a supernal eternal love. Again, that can only happen when Christ is in the center. So let's recap real quick. When we understand marriage is a sacred arrangement, it's God's idea, God designed it, and we accept our solemn assignment that is to strive together to honor Christ to become one in Christ, when that happens, folks, I'm going to tell you something beautiful, something wonderful takes place. At a National Conference of the American Association for Marital and Family Therapy, Dr. Mark Kapow shared a a question. He says that that's the heart of every marital counseling session. And he contends this. He says, Couples that honestly consider and answer this question throughout their married lives would rarely, if ever, need marital counseling. And the question, and I thought this is great, and over the years I've done this, the question that he says every husband ought to ask himself and every wife ought to ask herself is this, what is it like to be married to me? I challenge you to do that. Honestly ask that question and honestly answer it. Because I'm going to tell you something. It's a sobering question. When I have asked myself that question, i can got to be honest with you, I don't always get the answer that I want. I know, I know some folks here today, you're thinking, you know what? Everything that Jesus is describing, the marriage He's talking about, it's impossible, preacher. It's too good to be true. Friend, listen to me. Listen to me. What Jesus is describing is so good, it has to be true. Now, since it is true, we shouldn't settle for anything less. And if we'll follow the instructions of eternity's greatest marital counselor, something great will take place in our lives, in our marriage. Number one, our marriage will become something beautiful to God. Look at verse 4 again. He which made them at the beginning made them male and female. Again, I'm always amazed by this. Two totally different beings, male and female. But when consummated in marriage, an amazing thing takes place. Again, verse 6. Wherefore they no more twain, or no more two, but one flesh. And let me say this, when as marital partners, you reach that level where you become one in Christ, you have climbed up the mountain of eternal marital bliss. I mean, you've reached the top. You say, how do I know I've reached that? Because when you get to that point, it's not about you, husband. It's not about you, wife. No longer is the husband calling the shots. No longer is the wife calling the shots. But Jesus Christ is calling the shots. And I'm going to tell you, that's something beautiful to God. You know, one of the most beautiful aspects of a Christ-centered marriage is it perfectly depicts the relationship that we have with Christ as Christians. Let me explain this to you. The day that we were saved, in essence, we said, I do, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we accepted Christ, the ring of the Holy Spirit was placed upon us, and from that moment on, nothing separates us from the love of God. Folks, when I came to Christ and when you came to Christ, we didn't lose our identity. But what I did do was give up my authority. See, I no longer possess the right to live my own life because he, he, I'm His. I belong to Him now. The life that I have is now His. And when I came in essence to the marriage altar of salvation, it was me and Jesus. But folks, now it's just Jesus. I'm dead. He's the one that's alive. You see... Two become one, and that one is Christ and Christ alone. That is exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, where he says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. A Christ-centered marriage, something beautiful to God, it's also something blessed by God. The second century martyr, uh, Tertullian wrote this. He said, How beautiful is the marriage of two Christians. Two are one in hope, desires, and the way of life. They follow one in the religion they practice. Nothing divides them, either in flesh or spirit. They pray together. He's talking about a Christian husband and wife. They pray together, they worship together, they fast together, instructing one another. Side by side, they visit God's church and partake of God's banquet. Side by side, they face difficulties and persecutions and share their consolations. They have no secrets from one another. They never shun each other's company. They never bring sorrow to each other's heart. Hearing and seeing this, Christ rejoices. To such as these, He gives peace. You want peace in your marriage? Then Christ needs to be in the center. You and your spouse need to be striving to become one in Christ. God places His stamp of approval on the marriage that's centered in Christ. Notice again verse 6. What therefore God hath joined together that no man put asunder. In his book, Fireproof Your Marriage, uh, Michael Catt says this. One reason society takes divorce lightly, and I think he hit the nail right on the head, one reason society takes divorce lightly is because we bought the devil's lie that marriage is merely a human contract or a human agreement or commitment. In reality, marriage is a covenant before God, an agreement that is based not just on the faithfulness of the people involved, but on God's faithfulness to fulfill His covenant obligations. Marriage is a unique relationship between three people, God, the man, and the woman. When a Christian couple, and I love this, lives as God designed them to live, they become a most powerful witness for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Borrow a line from that movie, Fireproof. Fireproof does not mean the fire is not going to come, friend. It means when it does come, your marriage is going to be able to withstand it. And let me say this to you. The only way your marriage can withstand those times of fire is when it shines with the favor and the blessings of Almighty God. You say, "How do you know because I've been through the fire and the flood? I know. I'm going to close by telling you a story about a couple by the name of Bob and Sarah. Now, Bob and Sarah had been married for 50 years at this point in time, and they were as much in love after 50 years of marriage as they' ever been. Matter of fact, their love was even deeper and stronger, more beautiful after 50 years of being together. Now this couple they stood out because uh, they constantly laughed with one another, was touching one another, holding hands, uh, playing and teasing one another. And from the early days of their marriage, they had a, a little crazy little game they played. Nobody else understood. And in this game, what they would do, they would write a funny little word on a piece of paper and hide it in different places around the house for each other to find. And that word was shmily. S-H-M-I-L-Y. I right, guess how you say it, Schmiley. You know, every once in a while, Sarah would find a piece of paper with the word "smiley" on it in the cabinet or in the freezer. You know, every once in a while, Bob getting out of the shower, the word "smiley" would be written in, on the fog in the, the mirror. Well, the years passed, and they, ever, ever since they were first married, they played this game. Well, right after their 52nd wedding anniversary, doctors diagnosed Sarah with cancer. And she struggled, and she survived Battled the disease for nearly 10 years. And everybody that knew them, of course, was just amazed at how their love never faltered. How they continued to love, support, and uplift one another. And they continued to play that stupid little game where they'd write that word on pieces of paper. One day, the day came when Sarah passed away. The funeral was a glorious time of celebrating her life. She was a godly uh, wife, mother, grandmother, great-grandmother. But it was also a time of sadness, as all funerals are. And as the funeral possession arrived at the cemetery, and all the family got out of the cars and began walking up to the graveside, everybody noticed this huge pink ribbon across the casket. And on that ribbon in great big letters was that word, "Smiley." Now, understand, the kids had no idea. They knew mom and dad, but mom and dad never told them what the word meant it drove everybody crazy for years so when they got there the family gathered around the preacher said the closing remarks and then people began to leave and at that point in time Bob he walked up to the casket and the rest of the family kind of pulled back to give him his alone time to say goodbye to his beloved wife of 60 something years to say farewell to his best friend for all these years to his partner and in a deep voice, soft voice, he began to sing his wife's favorite song as he put his hand on the casket. And as the family and everybody pulled back, one of the grandkids walked up to him. She slid her hand in his hand, and he looked down with tears in his eyes, but with a big smile on his face. She looked up at him with tears in her eyes, and she said, Paul, Paul, will you please tell me what smiley means? And Bob picked that granddaughter up and gave her a big kiss on the cheek. And with a great big smile, he said, Baby doll, that word smiley means see how much I love you. See how much I love you. Now, I want to say this one more thought in closing. As we look at the cross of Jesus Christ, it's almost like God's written across it, smiley. You doubt, see how much I love you. Now, friend, from that, let me say this. The same ought to be said of our marriages. Because we are now able, because of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can love one another with a love that the world cannot understand and the world cannot grasp. And I'm going to say this and we're done. We are built to love our spouses. God designed it that way. We are built to love them with the love of God in Christ Jesus. You say, you don't know, my spouse is not very lovable. Maybe not, but Jesus is. Jesus is. You want to love your wife more? You want to love your husband more? Love Jesus more. But I'm going to tell you something. The love of Christ. Oh my, what a love that is. What a love that is. Would you bow your heads, please? In just a moment, we'll have a time of invitation. If you've never received the love of Christ, you've never accepted that, you need to walk the aisle this morning and give your life to Jesus Christ. If you're having trouble in your marriage, then make sure that you have got Christ first in your life before you try to fix your husband or your wife. Make sure you're where you need to be with Christ. Make sure that your love for Him is first place. And when you love Jesus the most, you'll love others the best. Father, I pray for those that need to make a decision this morning. I pray all that we've heard this morning would would penetrate our hearts and would show us that, that as your children, we are built to love. Built to love you, built to love one another. I pray for those who need to experience that love and for those who need to express that love. God, I pray you'd take a free hand in their relationship. In Christ's name, amen you stand please I have-